40 years last summer, but the recent interest rate hikes have helped cool off prices for everyday goods. Don't forget, tomorrow night, I will be joined by former Secret Service agent Paul Landis. He was just feet away from President John F. Kennedy when he was assassinated. He'll discuss his book, The Final Witness, and his stunning revelations that could change everything we know about JFK's assassination. But right now, it's time for Leland Vedder, who will have all the latest news and reaction to the Biden impeachment. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. We'll see you again tomorrow night. On the program tonight, unforced error. I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Just when Joe Biden is at his lowest point ever, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says it's time to impeach. I think the impeachment inquiry is absurd. Oh my God, really? Oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's devastating. Will Republicans ever learn no justice? Michigan State coach Mel Tucker completely denies the sexual harassment charges leveled against him. What his case says about the fundamental unfairness of kangaroo courts on college campuses. Planet Musk. New information on the power the world's richest man holds over all of us. Imagine if Dwight Eisenhower had to ask Elon for permission to attack on D-Day. And Candidate X. A Democrat running for office exposed for performing sex acts online. Virginia is for lovers, but is this too much for voters? Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. We're in Chicago tonight ahead of the town hall with Mike Pence tomorrow. We'll preview that in a minute. This will be a big topic at the town hall. Republican politics, specifically the Republicans' impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. But tonight, we'll take Republican politics a little differently and break it down, as explained by Forrest Gump. Today, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. As I said, we will allow Forrest Gump to explain what happened today. Are you crazy? Or just plain stupid? Stupid is stupid does, Mrs. Blue. I guess. There you go. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces a revolt inside his own caucus. So he bowed to the most crazy among them, quite literally, and did a reversal from just two weeks ago and launched an impeachment inquiry that, with present, has 0.0 chance of removing Joe Biden from office. Through our investigations, we have found that President Biden did lie to the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. If lying to the American people counts as a high crime and misdemeanor, then we can finally throw out all the bums from Washington. Of course, that is not going to happen. And it is almost mathematically impossible for Republicans to impeach Mr. Biden. Of course, the Democratic-controlled Senate is not going to convict him. Republicans hold the slimmest of majority. And even some conservative Republicans in Congress say 
that they don't even have the goods to begin this impeachment inquiry. The time for impeachment is the time when there's evidence linking President Biden, uh, if there's evidence linking President Biden to a high crime or misdemeanor. That doesn't exist right now. But I've not seen facts or evidence that would, at this point, uh, lead to that uh, end result for me. We don't want to repeat the mistakes we think that Nancy Pelosi made by prematurely moving to impeachment during the Trump administration. All right. With just those votes and a couple others who have said similar things, impeachment against Mr. Biden fails. So undeterred by logic or political reality, McCarthy chose to save his speakership over all else. Republicans, of course, could be talking about Joe Biden's horrible poll numbers, and they are horrible. Or they could be talking about near record high gas prices. They continue to go up. Or new numbers from the border showing a sharp increase in crossings. Of course, there was Mr. Biden's disastrous press conference over the weekend where he couldn't form coherent sentences. They could talk about his obvious lie yesterday about where he was on 9-11. They could also talk about the even more unpopular Kamala Harris. But no. A few threatens Republican McCar- threatened McCarthy on the House floor. I rise today to serve notice. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. So rather than Republicans being smart and playing to win, you saw Matt Gates grandstanding there, Republicans will launch an impeachment inquiry that will go nowhere. It will unite Democrats around Mr. Biden. Democrats right now, 60 plus percent, say they don't think that Joe Biden should run for another term. They question that. But no, Republicans are now uniting Democrats around Joe Biden. Of course, this impeachment inquiry will divide Republicans and make them look small and petty, as Ken Buck laid out. It gives the media endless opportunity to pit Republicans against each other. That's already started. So once again, here is Forrest. Stupid as stupid does, Mrs. Blue. I guess. Just a couple of weeks ago, McCarthy appeared sane when he stood in opposition to the crazies in his party. He wouldn't go down the same path Nancy Pelosi did when she launched Trump's impeachment. You saw Republicans talk about that. Yet here we are. And Republicans have yet to learn the lesson that the media will give Democrats a pass for such mistakes and they will pummel Republicans into the ground for the very same thing. Kurt Bardella is here, Democratic strategist, L.A. Times contributor and former House GOP Oversight Committee advisor. Kurt, am I right to point out, since you have seen this from both sides of the aisle, the double standard and how this is handled? Yeah, there absolutely is. There's no doubt about it, which is why, as we know that, it's kind of mind-numbing that Republicans would just so openly walk into this trap and put themselves in this position. Like what happens next and how the media covers this isn't going to be a surprise or a shock to either one of us. And yet here's Speaker McCarthy, you know, bowing to the will of a few crazy people in this conference to drag his entire caucus and the entire Republican Party into this charade. And it's just going to backfire tremendously. And it's like you said in your opening, because it was 100 percent right at a time when you could make the case credibly that the president is at his weakest where his poll numbers are, are, are under 40 percent, 
where there's legitimate consternation and discussion about his fitness and his age, when there's no enthusiasm from the Democratic Party base, why on earth would you throw him a lifeline like impeachment that will necessitate that the entire party apparatus rally around Joe Biden? Why would you do that? It is befuddling to me, Republicans I talk to, and look, there's some who stand behind this and say, look, we got to do this. But the, the, the vast majority of them privately are just shaking their heads and want nothing to do with this. The only thing I can think of, and look, you got to give Kevin McCarthy his due in terms of how he has at least so far held Republicans together. And to be fair, um, when it came to the debt ceiling, he pulled truly a rabbit out of his hat and put Joe Biden in a very uncomfortable position. I'm almost wondering whether he's doing this intentionally, right? You force Republicans to have this impeachment inquiry. It fails uh, on a vote when it's brought before the House floor. And then he turns it around and says, hey, hey, to the the crazies, to the Matt Gates and the instigators of this. Look, your beef isn't with me. Your beef's with the other moderate Republicans who voted against this. Now we all have to move on. I think that's a dangerous gambit if that's really what Kevin's doing, because you're going to have this unfold, mind you, at the same time that there are negotiations and deliberations about the budget, that we're facing a possible government shutdown if they can't get anything done there. And can you imagine the political fallout of doing this impeachment that nobody in America really wants while also dealing with a government shutdown where the same crazies that compelled him into impeachment will be holding the federal government hostage? That's not a good combination to happen at the same time. Yeah, rule. Rule number one in Washington, it doesn't matter whether Republicans are in Congress or in the White House, Republicans always lose a government shutdown. Just sort of is like, you know, (laughs) a truth about Washington. Kurt, I want to be fair to Kevin McCarthy and to House Republicans who are calling for this impeachment inquiry. And we said at the top, we're not going to deal with sort of the, the, the facts at hand about what Joe Biden did or didn't do. But by launching an impeachment inquiry, do they get greater powers of subpoena and investigation than the House Oversight Committee currently has looking into this? Yeah, because the they're not limited by whatever the congressional like Judiciary Committee or Oversight rules are. And there are very specific rules that are written for each committee of what boundaries they can really go into. And one of the things that's about congressional committees is there has to be a, quote, legislative purpose to justify whatever information they're after. Well, when you have an impeachment inquiry, uh, um, that is the legislative person. That becomes a function of Congress, an act of Congress. And so you can subpoena things and, and try to get witnesses and, and, and literally put on a trial. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think that, again, it's, 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 it's dicey because there's a rule that we have. You never ask a question unless you know what the answer is <laughs> and unless you have the evidence underlying to back yeah. it up. That was what we did at the Oversight Committee when I was there working for Daryl Isol. We did Fast and Furious. When we did Benghazi, when we did IRS targeting conservative Well, you, you, hold on. We you say, you say, well, you say ben- Yeah. Yeah, well, you also, though, with Benghazi, it didn't really work out well for Republicans there because they, they thought they had so much, and uh, it, it didn't turn out. There was a few things that came out, but the, the receipts just— Well, there, we knew I'm looking, at least I'm that, looking, like, there was, like, there were, like, we knew that, like, Hillary Clinton didn't have emails. Like, that was, like, a fact that we right. knew before yeah, anybody else did. So when we initially asked that question, people were like, wait, what? And that's what made it credible. Here, with Hunter and Joe, it's like, they don't really have the goods yet from what I've seen. Maybe they'll get it, but right now they don't. That's a tough position to put yourself into legally as a lawyer, if you will, trying to prosecute a case is, you don't have the goods. You don't know if the goods exist, but you're still going to move forward with this. That's a dangerous gambit to make. 
it's a very dangerous gamble politically, especially as we head into uh, the election. I'm looking behind you uh, on the kitchen counter. It looks like you got either a dinner party or at least a good time coming tonight. So uh, we wish you well. We appreciate you taking some time. There's some olive oil back there. Whatever you're cooking looks good. We'll be over for dinner later, my friend. Thank you. We'll see you. Hey, it's burger night here at Casa de Michael O'Neill. Oh, all right. Oh, burgers. I like that. All right. We'll talk soon, my friend. See you soon. Uh, we're about 48 hours away from 150,000 auto workers walking off the job. This is a problem not just for the union and car makers and suppliers and manufacturers in the city of Detroit, but what might happen over the next 48 hours is going to impact every single American, whether you buy a car, whether you work in the auto industry or not. If the UAW and American car manufacturers don't strike a deal by midnight Thursday, the economy on the whole loses $5 billion for every 10 days workers are on strike. It doesn't sound like much, but the state of Michigan's getting in a recession. Other parts of the Midwest, most likely Ohio and Wisconsin, are going to face some very, very dark days. There are going to be hundreds of thousands of Americans who don't work for the manufacturers, but who work for all of the suppliers. They're going to be put on furlough. There's going to be a lot of people heading into winter, high heating gas prices, high heating oil prices, rising gas prices, rising food prices, Christmas purchases coming up, and they won't have paychecks. So just think about the election implications for 2024. Of course, inflation, if this strike happens, will go up again. For the past several decades, we've been relentlessly under attack. Our plants have been closed, families torn apart, our standard of living has dropped like a rock, our work-life balance is a joke, our retirement security is a myth. All right. Ford Motor Company, as you might imagine, paints a very different picture of their workers' lives. We put a very significant offer on the table, actually several of them, that's going to make a big difference in the lives of our 57,000 hourly workers. Ford has more hourly workers in the auto industry than any other company. We produce more in the U.S. and, and export more. So it's a big deal for the economy and for Ford. Rick Berman is with us, longtime labor lawyer, president of RBB Strategies. You've been through a lot of these fights, Rick. Who has the upper hand? Well, it's it's not uh, it's not clear yet because uh, this guy Thane, uh, who's the new president of the UAW, is taking a big gamble here. He's suggesting that he can force all three companies to the bargaining table at the same time. This has never happened before. Usually, they target one company put pressure on that company and suggest that if that company doesn't cave, then they're going to lose business to their other two competitors. Now he's going after all three at the same time. But what happens in this situation, which wasn't the case historically, is that Toyota, Honda, Tesla, uh, Mercedes, Volkswagen, they're all in this country producing cars. They're all non-union. And if you put the pressure on those three companies, Business is going to flow to those to those other mostly import cars. And most importantly, if the companies cave, they're going to have to jack up the prices seriously because Fain is asking for big money. And if they jack up the prices seriously, then again, they've got all this competition that is going to be selling cars cheaper. So he's putting the companies in a very tough spot. And there's not a real good way out unless you back up. 
Yeah, it seems as though both both groups are now at the brink, but that's what always happens in, in labor negotiations. Look, you've been doing this for a long time, but the public perception of unions has changed drastically um, in terms of, of how Americans view unions. They view them much more favorably than they did in the 80s, the 90s, um, in 2000s. The union's going to strike all three major auto workers on September 14th, 40% pay raise, cost of living adjustments, uh, end tiered wage system, 32 hour work week. I wouldn't mind a 32 hour work week uh, <laughs> either. Um, all of that said, you know, the, the unions have a lot of power, not only over their own workers' jobs, but over the jobs of so many Americans. Uh, downstream or upstream parts suppliers, uh, large, and, large and small suppliers, uh, after the GM workers' strike in 2019, suppliers laid off workers within days. Workers at local auto supply companies also preparing to make big cuts um, as well. The, are we sort of fully cognizant, I think, in, in Washington and in New York and on the coast of what this strike or a long-term strike would mean for the American economy? No, I think people have absolutely no clue as to what the collateral damage will be. And it's understandable. Um, what you have to understand is that they call these assembly plants. They're assembly plants because they're getting the parts from all sorts of suppliers, and they come into these into these uh, manufacturing companies. But what the manufacturer does is just put all these pieces together. It's coming from all these other other uh, spots around the country. So if uh, if GM shuts down, if Ford shuts down, all those people who are sending in parts to be assembled, they shut down too. Yeah, the economic. Um reverberations here are going to be significant. Look, we had, the, you know, we, we went to the brink with the railroad strike. It didn't happen. Went to the brink with the UPS strike. It didn't happen. So now now we all wait. Rick, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Um, we heard from a lot of you about our segment last night on Michigan State University and the sexual harassment charges level that their head football coach, Mel Tucker, a university hearing will decide the matter October 4th. But Tucker says Michigan State is going to run a kangaroo court and, and he may have a point. From his statement, the sham hearing scheduled for October 5th through 6th is ridiculously flawed and not designed to arrive at the truth. For example, in this Zoom hearing, neither Miss Tracy, meaning his accuser, nor any of her witnesses will be required to testify under oath or penalty of perjury. We cannot offer or present any substantive evidence of innocence, and there's no opening statement, closing argument, or any opportunity to explain our case. In the last administration, the last U.S. administration, presidential administration, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos fought to level the playing field when it comes to he said, she said situations on college campuses. The Department of Education recognized that the accused were often not given due process in their investigations. So they enacted new regulations, giving the accused the ability to question evidence, call witnesses, cross-examine their accusers, um, sort of like a fair hearing. But of course, the Biden administration decided to roll that back and come up with a new set of regulations that civil libertarians found deeply troubling. Whether Mel Tucker sexually harassed a woman during steamy phone calls or if it was just cheating on his wife with another consenting adult is kind of beside the point right now. The real stories is the universities like MSU that preach equity and inclusion but ignore fairness. They preach diversity and then cover up sexual harassment allegations but then change their mind once the press finds out. Criminal defense and college student defense lawyer Shan Wu is with us now. You sort of pioneered this idea of exposing how colleges handle so many of these situations. Uh, 
the, the, the hearing that Mel Tucker describes, if he's describing it accurately, that sounds an awful lot more like the Soviet Union uh, than it does the United States. Well, I don't know if I would go that far, but it does, uh, assuming that he's uh, accurate, and I don't know if he is or not, uh, the schools really aren't set up to do court hearings uh, or criminal-type investigations. Uh, it's kind of a hybrid function where they are trying to protect the safety of students, protect the integrity of their investigations, and try to be fair. They're just not set up to do that. There's been a lot of effort made to do that. But what you have in these situations is oftentimes a unfair, very oppressive situation for both the person who is bringing the complaint as well as for the person who may be accused of it. So that's a very big systematic problem, and uh, it's, you know, it's really hard to, to try to correct that. I think about the timeline of this April 2022 phone call between Brenda Tracy and Mel Tucker takes place. They both agree on that. December, Brenda Tracy filed her complaint with MSU's Title IX office accusing Tucker of making sexual comments towards her. Uh, March, Mel Tucker was interviewed by an attorney uh, and admitted to the behavior, um, words we will not use on television, but claimed it was consensual. July, the investigation concluded. Uh, October, the hearing scheduled sometime in this. The press found out about it, and then suddenly they went from allowing Mel Tucker to stay. Conceivably, they, they may have found these allegations to be unsubstantiated uh, and allowed him to stay until this hearing with pay and on and on and on. But I, I guess where I'm, where I'm troubled, you said what the university is trying to protect all these different groups. You left out that they're sort of trying to protect their own image. Um, and at least as I've gone through this case and others, it seems like that in, in protecting sort of their, you know, their, their feeling in the cachet uh, is above all. I would agree with that. I think uh, part of the problem that schools face is after decades of really burying this for the same reason, not wanting parents or anyone else to realize these types of assaults might happen, uh, they've kind of now gone to the point of where they try and hide behind the process. But here, of course, it quite correctly, it was being kept confidential. And then once it hits the press, they feel like they must take some action. Um, I do want to say, Leland, for full disclosure for the viewers, I have represented um, Brenda Tracy, not in this matter. It was a matter unrelated to this, uh, where she was the uh, being subjected to death threats and stalking. Hmm. Um, but I don't have any inside knowledge about uh, this case. I'm looking at it really just purely from the outside and from my own experience in these types of investigations. No, we, we appreciate the disclosure and your expertise as well. You're really one of the one of, if not the world's uh, leading expert on this um, and how these cases are handled in colleges. Hey, uh, the hearing's coming up in October. Uh, we'll talk to you then, sir. Sounds good. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Double standard. The Washington Post does a hatchet job over one candidate's risque personal life, but celebrates Tim Scott's bachelorhood. Where are all the feminists? And Jesse Smollett tries to play one last get-out-of-jail-free card while the media is ignoring a story they loved for so long. I don't care. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the issue, and it's a big issue in the country. Why is my private life of inch, so much interest to you that you can't get past the fact that I may not be interested in being married. I might not want a, a, a spouse. Yeah. That doesn't mean I can't do the job. 
All right, that's Whoopi Goldberg on The View talking about a breathless Washington Post article that came out about senator and presidential candidate Tim Scott. In the Post-style section, they write, the unmarried Republican presidential candidate doesn't like talking about his new relationship very much, but he is talking about it. The article helpfully includes a long analysis of Scott's virginity and includes he is a confirmed bachelor as opposed to a closeted homosexual. Scott's treatment is far, far different than that of Susanna Gibson. She's a 40-year-old mother of two, married, and running for the Virginia House of Delegates. It's a very competitive race. The Daily Mail reports Susanna Gibson can be seen in videos obtained performing sex acts with her husband online and encouraging watchers to pay them with tips for specific requests. The New York Times, Washington Post, Daily Mail, and others cannot get enough of her online hobby. Susanna says she won't drop out of the race, and Republicans are just trying to silence her by peddling the tapes. Dr. Lauren Wright uh, is here, professor at Princeton University. Is there a double standard between how the private lives or the, the personal behaviors of men and women in politics are covered? Historically, there has been, but I'm not sure that's the case here. I mean, first of all, I read that Tim Scott article. I don't think it was flattering. A lot of the description is how he's hiding this or being shady about it. And people want to know about his relationship status, but he's not giving them information about it. So I don't think the mystery surrounding Tim Scott is necessarily good for his campaign and I also think with regard to this Virginia House candidate, uh, yes, we're very hard on women in particular. But when you're talking about commercial pornographic content, which is by all accounts what this is, there might be a different standard there that voters care about. Yeah, I, I hear the point. You think about Scott Brown, who was the Republican candidate uh, for Senate in Massachusetts, Republican senator in Massachusetts, and, you know, topless or, you know, nude on in Cosmo with certain things covered. Uh, I, I guess what's interesting to me is how fascinated the Washington Post, New York Times, Daily Mail, but especially the Post and the Times, because they are so committed to women and women's rights. And yet in a very competitive race, she is the Democrat. And it's almost like they're trying to shame her into dropping out. And I can't quite figure out why they're so obsessed with this. I'm not sure about that. I mean, it is a description of videos that they analyzed and saw, and those have been corroborated by other publications now. And so even if it's just a simple description and not a shaming or a derogation, it's probably going to be a negative story politically. And, you know, no one has ever accused the Washington Post of being a conservative leaning publication. And so even if they describe uh, Tim Scott's relationship status, it's just a very, very simple structure and maybe also harmful to him, I would argue. You are far more generous about this than I figured you would be, but I appreciate <laughs> the perspective. Uh, as always, it's good to see you. Thanks. Yeah. It's no surprise the case of Jussie Smollett. Haven't heard that name in forever. The case, of course, disappeared from the media because when it stopped fitting the narrative, everybody started ignoring it. The D-list actor, though, was in court today appealing his conviction for coming up with one of the most bizarre hoaxes uh, of this century. 
Smollett, of course, faked his own attack, claiming Trump supporters attacked him because he's gay and black. He made the whole thing up. None of it was true. And a judge sentenced Smollett to 150 days in Chicago's Cook County Jail. But being a star and a cause celeb, Mr. Smollett has only served six days. Jail was just too much for Jussie. And a judge let him out while he appealed his convictions. Pretty rare in a criminal case. That was more than a year ago, and today an appeals court finally took up his case. Jen Smith, chief reporter from DailyMail.com, is back from a very well-deserved European vacation. Looks like you looked great, Jen. We're glad to have you. Glad to be back. It just seems like nobody cares about Jussie anymore. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, look, when we look back to the original coverage, the, the genesis of this Jussie Smollett saga, right, there was an overwhelming amount of not just media coverage, but sympathy for this actor. We had what seemed like a bigoted attack on an up-and-coming actor who was black and gay. It was awful, what the attack that he claimed had happened, right? We all covered it voraciously. Then it came out that it was just a story, a story he'd made up, or even worse, actually, an attack that he had staged. And that's when the treatment of this really split. And I'm not sure if it was just that it was inconvenient that here was someone who was, at the time, a martyr for, you know, these minorities, or whether it was just people didn't really want to handle it in the same way. But here we are again. He's back in court. No one wants to talk about it. And he is back in court, not because of any new evidence. He's just claiming that he wants his conviction overturned on a legal technicality. He says he's the victim of double jeopardy. I think that he's not received the full media treatment because he is an actor, because he is or was trendy. He's a celebrity. And, he's yeah. a celebrity, sure. Yeah, but I don't well, know. I mean, do you think that me. this would have You're... happened if someone had claimed to be the victim of attack by, if it was a white heterosexual man claiming falsely that he was the victim of attack by two African-American gay men, that lie should be vilified, rightfully so. I don't know that that's happened to the same extent for Jussie Smollett. No, it, it hasn't. And look, to be fair, right, it, you're, you're a reporter and one of the better ones. But uh, there's so the, the media bought this hook, line and sinker and went so quickly down this rabbit hole. It's got to be kind of embarrassing, right? Every every time you got to bring it up. Um, and even though it's the media's job to be the watchdog and to point out that nobody else gets let out uh, of jail after six days when, you know, on a six month sentence so that they have time to appeal and can live their life for this whole time. Mm. But every time that it, you, you cover it, it's inherently embarrassing for all of those reporters and anchors and pundits who bought this hook, line and sinker and never bothered once to say, it seems odd that a guy would be out by himself getting a Subway sandwich at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there, this was a sophisticated hoax. It wasn't as if he just made up this story with nothing behind it. He did physically stage it. And the media weren't the only yeah. ones that fell for it. You had the Chicago PD, pretty thoroughbred detectives. They were in on it. They treated it as all alleged hate crimes should be treated in their origins. They treated it seriously. It didn't take very long for his story to start unraveling. Of course, there perhaps is an element that some of yeah. the journalists who fell for this swallowed it whole. Maybe they are embarrassed, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be covering it now. Yeah, and the, we had a civil rights attorney on, uh, federal, former federal prosecutor Philip Turner, back in the day when this was all working its way through the courts. He said the real victim here, the real victim, are the people who end up having real hate crimes perpetrated mm -hmm. against them in the, in the future. And the problem is now, everybody says... 
oh, is this just another Jesse Smollett? And and that's that's the real tragedy here. Hey, uh, Jen, it was good talking to you. Thank you. Uh, and welcome back. We'll have you back soon. All right. Thanks, Leland. Yes, ma'am. Henry Ford was the richest man in America during World War II. Elon Musk is now the richest. So imagine if Henry Ford, or now Elon, tried to dictate how America fought World War II. How the world's richest man today, Elon Musk, is swaying America's foreign policy. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Through time, the world's richest men were always subject to government control. Emphasis on were. That's not true anymore. Elon Musk proved a single American, a single American company, now can set its own foreign policy and act unilaterally for or perhaps against American interests. Musk's Starlink internet system provides communication services for the Ukrainian military. And Musk reportedly personally scrubbed Ukraine's plan to attack a major Russian installation. If I had agreed to their request, meaning the Ukrainians' request to turn on a part of Starlink, and then SpaceX, that owns Starlink, would be explicitly complicit in a major act of war and conflict escalation. Musk's statement confirms he views himself as more powerful than some governments, even more powerful than the Pentagon, for example, in the war in Ukraine. And he has no problem using his power to dictate foreign policy throughout the world. Of course, he controls large investments in artificial intelligence, SpaceX, Tesla, and of course, Starlink. It would be as if Ford refused to build B-24 bombers during World War II out of fear of escalating the war. The president of Ford, Henry Ford, would have found himself in a world of hurt, if not in jail, had he done that. Obviously, that's different for Elon Musk right now. Joining us now, award-winning independent journalist Glenn Greenwald. Glenn, am I right to, to point out that we are in this uncharted territory of an, a private individual being able to have their own foreign policy? I don't think so. In fact, I've always understood that one's right as an American citizen or having a private company is that you don't have to put your company in servitude to the policy of the United States government. You have every right to refuse, for example, to involve yourself in foreign wars. Let's remember the United States is not at war with Russia. Ukraine is at war with Russia. And I don't know where this idea comes from that when some foreign government in Kiev demands that you make your services available to their country for their war, you're duty bound to do it or you're somehow violating a law. I don't understand the basis for that at all. No, I'm not saying that in any way it's Elon Musk's responsibility. And I agree with you that as a private company, you can do whatever you want. I was more saying that this is sort of the first time we are seeing 
someone, an individual, control the tools of war in a way that a, a private company can have such a profound effect on foreign policy that's normally the purview of nation states? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to a bigger problem, which is that the United States has now been outsourcing all kinds of functions that ought to be the government functions. The intelligence community is largely run by Booz Allen Hamilton. The Pentagon is run by Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. And that, I think, is an important point that a lot of this research that these companies are profiteering on were actually research done by the U.S. government in the first place. And the American taxpayer is not benefiting from these foreign these for, uh private companies are. And that does then lead to the question, well, if the U.S. government is so dependent on the private sector to carry out even things like war fighting, then you do get into a position where what happens when these companies don't want to serve your foreign policy, as is the right to do. And that, I think, is a legitimate concern. All right. So where did things change? You think about World War II, Ford and General General Motors made tanks, they made planes, all sorts of things. They completely retooled the American industrial system to be on a war footing. Howard Hughes helped the CIA on a top secret mission to retrieve a sunken Soviet submarine, on and on and on and on. There, if, if not by required by law, there always seemed to be a sense of duty by American companies, uh, even either because they were being paid a lot of money, but also a sense of patriotism to sort of go along with and support the, the interests of the United States government. Elon Musk doesn't seem to have that. He seems to have his own worldview uh, that is different than that. And I'm wondering uh, if there isn't a little bit of a danger there. I think it's dangerous to suggest that your patriotic duty requires you to make yourself available, give your assets over to a foreign government to fight a very dangerous war. Elon Musk says, let's assume he's telling the truth, that he was concerned that attacking the Russian ships at bay could lead to nuclear escalation. He was hearing that from the Russians. Is it a patriotic duty to ignore those concerns, to make yourself complicit in what could be the escalation of a very dangerous war? Don't you have the right of conscience to dissent from your own government, especially when your government's not at war? I think that's the issue. Yeah, no, there's no question you have the right to. I guess the larger point, though, is you just because you have a right to do something also means that there's some there's some consequences later on. I wonder if all of a sudden if the U.S. government is using Starlink at times, if then all of a sudden he decides to turn it off. You mentioned that what he was hearing from the Russians. Uh, as far as a private business person, Elon Musk is concerned, he is undoubtedly an outstanding person. This must be recognized. And I think it is recognized all over the world. He's an active and talented businessman. He's succeeding a lot, including with the support of the American state. So says Vladimir Putin. Um, you're known by the, the friends you keep, are you not? I mean, the, the United States is very close partners and allies with the Saudis and the murderous regime there and the Egyptians and the murderous regime there. I mean, the nature of international affairs is that you often end up in bed with very dangerous people. But in this case, all Elon Musk was doing was abstaining from getting involved in the war. He wasn't helping the Russians. He was just refusing to get involved in a very dangerous escalation because he was concerned about the consequences. I wish our government leaders were more concerned about that as well. Yeah, we've talked a lot about uh, the unintended consequences here. Glenn, I think you make some really fascinating points here, uh, especially considering now we have we have one man now sort of involved in foreign policy in a way that that very rich men in times past have not. It's good to see you as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
things happen at New York Fashion Week. They do. We will roll this video and show you why a playful see-through number just brought the house down, literally, when we come back. All right. We spend so much of our show talking about what is sometimes wrong in America and why we necessarily can't trust each other, think good things about each other. And Chris Cuomo took this picture. Um, it appears as though there's something on fire in the water. And Chris, I, I hear that your your faith in humanity has been renewed. Uh, no, just reinforced, my brother. Uh, I know okay. that uh, you're going to you're going to show what happened at the Fashion Week and that fool uh, that played the prank. And, you know, it's just another chapter in the stupidity of what uh, we yeah, see. We'll get in to that. Tell me about the photo. All right. So I wanted to offset it with what is also true about people. So I was out uh, entertaining some people today, took them for a ride out on Long Island. On the way back, I see smoke. Uh, by the time I got to this, maybe it was four or five miles away, boats had come from every direction. Remember, the season's over, Leland, right? I mean, this is the off-season for boaters now, after Labor Day. They came from all directions. This boat obviously had a gas fire. It's a gasoline engine cigarette boat and went up in flames. The two people in the boat wound up in the water. Not only did boats come from every direction, just regular people who were out there fishing and enjoying themselves, they were so nonchalant. They picked these two people up in the water just a few minutes. I'm sure it felt like a lifetime for the two guys who were in the water. Picked them up. No big deal. I heard them on the radio with the Coast Guard. Everybody was calm. We're coming in. What do you need? Where are they headed? We'll take them there. Nobody knew these people. Nobody knew them. Yeah. This is who we are, too. People responded on their own accord. They weren't grandstanding. The guy was calm when I went past his boat and he had the two people in there. They were wet. They were giving them towels talking to the Coast Guard, figuring out where to take them. That's who we are also. Yeah, well, you know, the worst of times brings out the best in Americans, right? And you and I talked about this last night a little bit with 9-11 um, and how uh, when, when, when things are tough, there's nothing better than fellow Americans in your corner. And we've, we've forgotten that and turned on each other. It's a good reminder. It really is. That's why I sent you the picture, handsome. There, there you go. I appreciate it. Joe Namath coming up. Um, he's going to talk One about the New York my personal heroes. Okay, have you heard about this yes. thing, though, about how everybody in the bar in Wisconsin was running up their tab when they thought the Jets uh, were going to lose? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And th- that's then they what all sports had to pay their bar tab? That's right. It makes us <laughs> do stupid things like being a Jet fan, which I have been my whole life. And Joe Namath is the only jet quarterback we've ever had win and he did it the year before i was born i want to ask him straight up are the jets jinxed all right well you know what here's here's to hoping my friend we'll, we'll be might be a while but we're pulling for you it's not over keep the faith <laughs> life is pain management for jets fans yeah, well, hey, look, the Giants lost, the Jets won. You can't have a better week one than that, right? Yeah. All right, all right. Hey, look, I'm, try- I'm trying to give you something. All right, it's funny. We it's won cool one game, but our whole season really cool. could be over. But, I'll, I, yeah, I'm, I love Joe Namath. I'll <laughs> see you in a second.
All right, we'll see you soon. Uh, we asked you what you thought about the governor of New Mexico stepping all over her constituents' Second Amendment rights, and you had some strong opinions. That's next. Welcome back. New Mexico's attorney general wants nothing to do with the governor's temporary ban on guns in public. We first told you about this yesterday. There have been protests in New Mexico over the emergency order to suspend open and concealed carry laws in the state. At John Hassel 3 wrote, who agrees that there is limitations on the Second Amendment? No one I know thinks that, and I know a lot of people. Felons can't have guns, among other people, John. So there are lots of limits on the Second Amendment. Sawblade Customs of New Mexico shooting last night in Albuquerque. Criminals must not have gotten the memo. That is perhaps the point. Chris is next. I'll see you tomorrow.